You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers. The 308, the 270, the 28 Nosler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 out 6 and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit savagearms.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Fingers show. <laughs> My name is Dan Johnson. You know that. But I'm going to hit you with the Ric Flair woo real quick because I feel that this is one hell of an episode. We are joined today by Matt Ross from the National Deer Association, and we are going to talk about deer discovery, some pretty major deer discoveries that were made in the last 10 years. Now he wrote this article and I noticed it because I'm signed up for the national deer association, uh, like mailing list. So I get these emails and I think it's something uh, that you guys need to go check out as well. But so there's, he, he does 20 of them. We don't get to all 20 in this episode. Uh, there's 20 in the article, but uh, we talk about some ones that basically interested me uh, and uh, some that he thought were really interesting for everybody else to know about. But it's deer discoveries that have a pretty big impact for like science or hunting or whatever in the last 10 years. All right. Really cool. So it's a excellent episode and I hope everybody listens to it and I hope you share it with your friends because not only is it... Uh, um, knowledgeable or inter- and it's also entertaining as well. So you're going to, you're going to get a kick out of this one, but we got to do a podcast or I'm doing a podcast. My brain's in 50 places right now because I am in the process of trying to do a whole bunch of work in the next 24 hours, maybe 30 hours. So I can leave Saturday morning to go back to South Dakota to try to get it done to fill my, uh, my tag for uh, mule deer out there so I have a tag left I'm trying to get out to South Dakota I'm trying to end the season off strong maybe get a little redemption out there because I got my butt kicked the last time I went out there and uh, get it done and this is a pretty a pretty cool transition into our uh, into our commercial today so wasp broadheads now man I love these broadheads and uh I absolutely destroyed my buck with the Wasp Jackhammer. That's their mechanical. Um, I also use the Boss Four, four Blade, but uh, I'm hoping to send a Jackhammer through a mule deer while I'm out in South Dakota. Um, I had a hard quartering away shot uh, this year. I was at 25 yards. The deer was kind of in an awkward position, but I let the arrow go anyway, and I went right through this deer's shoulder with a mechanical and it came out like his front chest right so i hit one lung trachea jugular and he bled out and was dead really really fast the head left a huge huge 
blood trail. Well, the kind of blood trail where you don't need to get on your hands and knees to find. You can basically just uh, at a at a brisk walk follow it because it's blood, blood, blood. And uh, you know, you shoot a deer in the right spot, they're going to bleed. But when you have a very well built, well put together you know, with really good materials, man, it just makes it, it better. You you have confidence in your equipment and I have confidence in wasp broadheads. They're made in America too. So that's a win. Now, uh, if you want to find out more information about the wasp broadhead, you can go to wasparchery.com, take a look at their mechanical and their fixed blade selection. And uh, I really do think you should purchase something while you're there. And I can get you 20% off with this discount code. Nine, the number nine, fingers 2020. So nine fingers 2020, you're gonna save 20% off your purchase. So what I would do is I'd stock up for next year now and uh, you know, get take advantage of that discount code so there's that all right other than that man i think i just want to mention one thing right if you're not already following nine fingers on social instagram and facebook please do that the the thing that i want to mention though though is that in 2021 2021 i am going to be producing making whatever you want to say a cooking show right it's going to be called the nine finger kitchen and i am going to basically put together recipes and show you guys how I cook recipes. Now we're not talking about deer buttholes. We're not going to be talking about coal fat. I don't use that stuff, right? Um, this is going to be recipes for, I guess, I guess the average Joe, maybe someone who has limited time, doesn't have a, a ton of time to prepare or a recipe that you can put together and then walk away from, go do something and then come back and eat it. Uh, things like meatloaf, uh, beef burgers, um, tacos, like really simple, fun recipes that your whole family will enjoy and they don't take a lot of prep work and they're delicious. And uh, I'm also going to be doing the the cuisine part of it and i'm going to be talking about pairing those foods with specific alcoholic drinks uh bourbon wine beer all that good stuff so uh i don't know about you but uh when it comes to let's just say a really good venison sloppy joe or um a beef burger, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I love a good cold beer with one of those. So uh, we're going to talk all about that stuff on the YouTube channel, the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. That's what you're, when you're going to find it. I'm not necessarily sure exactly when this cooking show is going to launch, but I will say that uh, you need to keep an eye out for it because it's going to be fun right? Fun, good recipes, good food, and uh, good BS too. I'll, I'll say that. So keep an eye out for that. All right, we're done talking. Let's get into today's deer discovery. It's in the last 20 years or 10 years, excuse me, with my man, Matt Ross. In three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Matt Ross. Matt, how are we doing, man? Good, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing I'm, I'm happy because I got meat in the freezer. I got uh, uh, a big rack sitting on my little coffee table here in my office. And I know that at the end of the week, I'm going on my last hunting excursion for the year. And then it's back to 100% work and dad life and husband life. And uh, then, you know, we're, we all dream about what 2021 is going to bring us, right? Oh, it's always optimism when yeah. we think about the next year. And congrats. Actually, I, I haven't talked to you since you shot that buck. Congrats. I saw that. that that's awesome. Looked like it was quite a thrilling uh, hunt that day. Yeah. As unconventional un, uh, as it was, it looked like it got your heart pumping, which is always good. Right. And uh, meat in the freezer is always good, too. Absolutely. So that's good. Absolutely. Uh, how, how has your season been this year? It's been good. I... Uh, I've hunted a decent amount, mostly bow hunting. I actually haven't looked at my log in a while, but I, I put a, a lot of time in during archery, um, trying to kill really one of two bucks. I actually got eyes on one of them, but it was, wasn't within bow range, but I spent a decent amount of time in a stand, but way more than last year. We were just chatting a minute ago. Par partly of that is due to COVID. My, my, uh, family situation was changed where my wife was home working and I was home working. So I was able to get out a lot of afternoons where normally I'm the one uh, ferrying the kids at the end of the day and that kind of stuff. But I had a great season archery, just didn't kill anything. Yeah. Um, saw a lot of deer, 
almost every set. I mean, I don't think I got skunked more than a couple times, but that was good. Um, and then most of the firearm season here in New York, I've dedicated to getting other folks out. I do have one deer in the freezer. I killed a doe the second day of the season. Um, I took out an old college friend on, on that Saturday and got him a buck. Um, and then through our, our uh, mentored uh, program called Field of Fork at the National Deer Association, I've been taking another guy out and actually men- mentors from last year that didn't get a deer. So I've been trying to get other people deer uh, during the firearm season. I just kind of had hit this Sunday or yesterday, uh, it kind of hit me. I got to the stage in the season where I got to stop messing around. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, really, I got about one week left of, of firearm, and then we got a one week of late muzzleloader archery. So I have two weeks left to like really make make something happen for myself. And uh, so I've kind of switched gears to, from from that to, to being a little bit more selfish. So I got some more time. Yeah, I'm actually literally editing an, a, a piece for our deer report, a big whitetail report that we put out next year yep. on uh, season lengths. And uh, when you called me, I'm he- heavy into the data here, looking at all the different lengths of seasons. And um, I know here in New York, a lot of folks, friends, my friends, people I talk to are like, our season's too damn long, you know, and it's just interesting when you ask and look at all the states and say, how long is your total days of season that are open? Yeah. And you start comparing it. I was, I was kind of getting lost in the data here, and then my phone rang. So, anyway. Well, it's, I got two more weeks. That's plenty of time. If I had to guess, it depends on who you interview, right? So for me, you know, I I harvested my buck, and I still have a couple doe tags left. But for me, you know, the the season this year was was long enough, right? It was it was good. Uh, but if I didn't shoot a deer this year, it's probably not long enough. So <laughs> I wonder if there's any correlation between, you know, whether you've already shot a deer and how you answer that question. Yeah, probably. And, and actually we, one thing that we get asked a lot is how successful are hunters. And this is kind of shocking. Only, I shouldn't say only, but about 39 to 40% of, of all hunters are successful in a given year. Typically it's about that, you know, all, out of all hunters out there and only, uh, 15% actually shoot more than one deer. So out of all the millions of hunters out there, only, you know, a certain percentage are killing. So I, I bet you're right. That correlation is probably there. And, uh, that's why we get, you know, we get a lot of loud voices out there. That's good too. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, if I had to guess whitetail hunters are the most successful, uh, type of big game species hunters in the, you know, you said what, 30 some percent, 39% was it? Yeah. Yep, it's about thirty high thirties, low forty percent uh, of whitetail hunters are successful in a given year. And I don't know what it is for other game, especially big game. But yeah. my guess is you're right. It is probably higher for whitetails. Yeah, huh? I'm gonna have to look into that, and because uh, I now now I'm kind of curious. But you wrote an article back on uh, that came in with the uh, National Deer Association email blast that goes out every once in a while and i think it was somewhere around november 17th is when the article actually launched but the the title of this this article that you wrote is the 20 biggest deer research discoveries of the last decade and i felt like that was a good topic to bring to the table on this podcast and and chat a little bit about so um, before we get into, you know, number one through 20 and we, you know, there's a good chance we don't make it through all 20, but we want to cover the, the, the biggest and most, I guess, predominant, uh, discoveries. But what I'm going to, uh, ask you here is, um, how did you go out and I guess by definition, locate what discoveries had the biggest impacts and how you ranked them? Yeah. And I, I appreciate you asking me to, to be on to talk about this. This, is, this has been like an interesting little journey on this article. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little backstory before I tell you how I picked it, if you don't mind. Yeah. I, uh, you know, so we, uh, the uh, formerly QDMA had either a convention or net or what we did in the last couple of years were a little bit more hands-on kind of family oriented whitetail weekend. There were in-person events that we celebrated kind of our year and all of our volunteers and, and those kind of things. I know you've been to some of our conventions in the past and actually recorded a podcast for, for us or for yourself at that one, which was, which was good. Yeah. So this year we were planning, um, you know, pre COVID, we didn't know it was going to hit. And I was 
trying to brainstorm an idea to give a presentation at it. And, you know, it's 2020. It's kind of a play on that number. I originally pitched the idea to my coworkers. I was like, why don't I talk about the 20 biggest discoveries over the last 20 years? And uh, I can do a play on kind of that title. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of information. Everybody's like, that sounds good. Um, so that's kind of where where it started. I started digging into the literature in a couple different ways. And the title changed um, pretty quickly. One, because the volume of research that's out there in the past even decade is so much. I actually did a – there's a really good book – about like all the stuff on deer deer research, um, there's actually a couple of versions of it, but the latest, the last version of it came out. It's called Biology and Management of Whitetail Deer. It's it's um, edited by Dr. Dave Hewitt, but he kind of covers in that book, um, and that came out in 2010. Um, that book, all of the di- different literature in there, and if you look at it, and he talks about it in kind of his his forward, there's about 1,400 or around there, um, peer reviewed paper and what peer reviewed is somebody writes a scientific paper, um, in the scientific method, they have like methods and they come up with the hypotheses and they, they test it. Um, and then they come up with a conclusion at the end. And then you have your peers, other researchers, um, you know, dear nerds like myself, I guess, uh, that review it and say, you did a good job or ask questions like, why'd you do that? Well, that does it. That's not true to, to the scientific method. And so that's all tested. Well, since 2010, I did a, a review. Once I started seeing all the literature that had been coming out, you can search the stuff online these days. And I found there was like over 600 papers almost, you know, since the last decades, there's just so many things in the, in the research. So I quickly decided that 20 years was too long. I, I was going to have a hard time kind of filtering through it. And really, some of the, the technology has really changed in the last decade, too. I mean, you go back 20 years, and a lot of the movement stuff you think about deer was done with – some of it was done with GPS units, but a lot of it was like radio telemetry, the old like holding up an antenna. Yeah. And more of the recent stuff has got just got better technology. So that, that kind of shifted and changed my, my title, which was fine. Um, the way I really started to dig into it, though, is we send a representative from the National Deer Association to there's a couple major regional meetings every year um, that have deer researchers, either professors or students that are at a master's or doctorate level giving a presentation about what they found. And so a couple of those conferences have online resources where you can search abstracts. You can actually go in and type in a year or a certain years. Um, I also have attended a, a couple of these, uh, every, one of them every year and a couple of them almost every year. So I actually have the printed manuals, the proceedings from it. So I just started like flipping through stuff um, and narrowed down uh, what was a list of hundreds and I started kind of, I actually literally had a scrap piece of paper. It was like a ledger on my bu- on my desk. And I would just write down the year, the researcher's name, and kind of a generic topic, you know. And I wrote it not like full, full hand, but I would like what they found out and what it was. And I came up with a list of, I don't remember how many, probably 40 or 50 things that I thought were really um, important. And the reason I would list it was, well, first of all, it was all whitetails. Let me say that too. You know, it, it's my the the list of twenty is subjective, but they were all based on uh, whitetail deer in those last decade. And I first and foremost thought, how does this apply to either a deer hunter or a deer manager? I kind of had those two things in mind because that's what that's what we do yeah. at our organization. We want to give information to somebody that's hunting, I'm a, you know, we're talking about hunting. I'm a hunter. I want to know what's going to help me be better, um, as a hunter, be more successful, lower, you know, lower my, my, uh, faults and things that I might mess up on and increase the things that might make me more successful. And then from a deer manager's perspective, I mean, I went to school for a lot of that. And I know we write a lot about habitat management and managing populations. You know, what, what are those two topics? So that helped me kind of narrow it down. And I started to 
um, bounced the the list between a couple colleagues and said, you know, we basically shaved it down to to the twenty. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's mostly sub- subjective, but I tried to also provide balance. I don't want it to be all habitat. I wanted a mix of those two things. I didn't want it to be. I mean, there's certainly so much research that didn't get listed here, and I, I, there's a. It's a testament to how much is going on right now in the in the deer research world. It's great. I mean, we're learning so much about them, but I wanted the balance of um, demographic balance, meaning like I didn't want it to be all southern studies. I wanted to include stuff coming out of the north and Midwest. Um, I wanted it to be. Uh, also balance in terms of the topic. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it ended up coming out to, to 20. I'm sure there were some that were close, but really, I mean, there's just so much good stuff out there. Yeah. Anything yeah. that took you by surprise or like, man, I've been doing this a, a while and I didn't even think about this. Yeah. There's stuff in there that took me by surprise. Um, you know, there's a couple things in there that I had, I had heard, and uh, forgot, you know, 10 years goes by, it's, it's a long time. Uh, there are some things in there that I knew were going to uh, need to be there. And then, you know, there was, uh, for example, I get into CWD in, a, in one of these things. As I was lit, that wasn't originally even in the list. But then I said, how can I talk about, you know, what we found out about deer and not talk about CWD? I mean, think about the last decade, what, what that's done. So um, I don't know it was kind of a nuanced procedure of coming picking it out and uh i'm sure i have that scrap paper somewhere that has other ones maybe i'll do a part two at some point but really it was just it was the idea came from the powerpoint for our whitetail weekend which was in march i was like i need to give a presentation it'll be fun to be up there for 30 minutes to 40 minutes talking about it and it, it kind of anchored day one where we had this welcome from our ceo and then i was the first one on the stage after that, because we had everybody in the room. And then the way the Whitetail Weekend uh, schedule worked, which was different from our national conventions, was we broke everybody up and they had, we had what's called concurrent sessions. So we had things going on in several different places. So they had choices. People could go, you know, in th- one of three different locations on our property to watch a presentation and hands on demonstrations. And actually, we had, um, some folks that are part of the Sportsman's Nation Network, like the guys from Land and Legacy, yep. they were there talking. Um, but that was balanced with, you know, one of a couple other different options. But we had everybody in place in one room because it was the welcome. I gave that talk and then everybody went from there. Gotcha. Well, that was it was it was popular. I had lots of people come and ask if they could get a copy of the presentation, which is, you know, it's always flattering. And uh, I I thought, you know, we need to kind of cover this in a couple different ways. So the idea to write an article came up uh, pretty quickly. Uh, that's happened before for other presentations, either myself or other uh, NDA staff have, have done, where we've, you know, said, hey, you know, we need to share this with a broader audience. So, you know, the date wasn't um, random. We wanted yeah. it to come out in the middle of the rot, you know, for most of the U.S., so I gave the talk back in March, but we knew that in mid-November we'd be coming out with this blog. And uh, for those that haven't read it but would like to hear it more in like a, a audio form or even a visual form, um, NDA actually now has a um, – every month we have a free webinar. It's called the Beer and Deer webinar series. We're supposed to – kind of like cocktail hour. Um, it's the It's the um, – evening version of what has been the coffee and deer podcast our ceo has and uh i actually gave a beer and deer webinar on this topic as well a couple months ago so you can go on nda's youtube channel and actually watch an hour presentation with slides if you want it was the presentation i gave that way till weekend but to a digital audience there was i was like 150 people watching it but it's it's recorded so you can watch it and um actually along those lines Next Monday, today is the seventh, so uh, the fourteenth is our next beer and deer, and we got uh, your buddy Mark Kenyon nice. coming to give give a talk. So nice for those that wanna wanna see if if this comes out before that, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's uh, let's get into these now. Um, All right. So I'm just gonna kind of read the the title of 
some of these uh, some of these breakthroughs, and I'll let you kind of explain from there. And I may have some questions to to bounce in and out of you. But some of these right. are some of these are weird because I, I look at number one here: deer see in slow motion, and I I'm like, no, they don't. They no, they see in regular time. Like. So what's the deer? What's the deal with this? So obviously a lot of questions here, but deer see in slow motion. Explain that. All right. So research uh, found this is just a couple of years ago in 2017 that basically how a deer's brain and eye processes what's visual images, what they're seeing, um, is faster than we process that. Um, meaning they're more sensitive to movement in terms of. If you're moving, if you're moving in the stand, um, they can actually react a lot quicker to it. Um, so if you want to think of it in terms of a metric, they see almost the rate that they process images is about four times the speed as what we do. Meaning that like if you were going to take as you're looking, you know, at whatever's in front of you right now, it's really just a process of still images. You're, you're putting together a film almost if you would watch a film going they, they can speed that up. Um, they can watch those images faster. Um, and so if you're going to try to, uh, while you're hunting, if you want to try to eliminate being spotted, what I tell other hunters is try to move about four times or more slower than you would normally. <laughs> if you can think about that, like if you're going to reach for your bow, you know, and you're just going to do it in normal speed, just try to be slow, you know? I mean, I don't know how else to say it. That's funny. Um, yeah. Now, with with them being able to process their environment faster through through the, the sight, to you know, their eye to their brain, is do you think that this also has an impact of them being able to have quicker reaction times physically, like dropping, uh, and, you know, dropping lower than an arrow or... or yeah jumping or twitching or whatever you know oh man he, he 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 dropped or my he dropped my arrow i do i think that their reaction time is probably four times faster than ours if you think if you watch any film of somebody that's trying to show something where a deer's dropping from an arrow coming at him think about yourself if somebody yeah. shot an arrow at you would you be able to move that fast oh no i'm There's dead no way we'd be able to move <laughs> yeah. that fast i mean that's yeah they it's because they they're seeing it faster than we are and uh, and are reacting man that's interesting yeah, yeah it just it just just that fact alone i have i have now even more respect for these animals and how they adapt to their environment yeah one of the cool things about it is that research too is they found that um the ability functions at all times of day but it's around sunrise and sunset it's basically those low light uh, situations when it's actually the most effective, right. which is when they're most active. I mean, it's not a coincidence, but for some reason, when there's like full daylight or, or full dark, that processing time is not uh, quite as effective than it is at dawn and dusk. Yeah. Crazy. All right. So the next one here is you are what your grandparents ate. Yeah, this is cool. This is uh, something called epigenetics, meaning Think about it this way. You know, if, if you ever talk to a hunter and they claim that from whatever state they're hunting or province um, that they're doomed, that the deer growing on the ground that they're hunting is not like X or Y, right? That it's just not as good because of the environment and the food. Um, this study was out of Mississippi State. Um, it was a few years ago. They took fawns. From the wild, captive, captured them, brought them back to the deer to the pens there at the deer lab at Mississippi State, raised them. Um, they they took them from different physiographic regions in the state too, a really good soil, moderate and poor poor quality area, and raised their offspring. Ra you know, raised them the does that they uh, that were from that area. Uh, raised their offspring, raised their offspring, couple of generations. They basically segmented them and they fed them really high quality diets. And what they found was, will that change? If the deer coming from like the poor quality area, are they doomed from the beginning? You know what I mean? They're, they're from X, this really poor quality area. Are they going to always stay poor quality? Well, no, it's not the case, but it took a couple of generations to see a change. 
you would think that that would change after one generation. You know, you, you capture this deer that's from a poor quality area, you give it really good food, and probably the fawn of the next generation will um, will show show up. Well, no, it took a couple of generations uh, for that to change. And kind of the take home message there is you can always manage for better deer. Um, it doesn't matter what situation you're in. If somebody's complaining that they're in a poor quality area and that they're doomed from the beginning, um, no, you can manage and provide better nutrition and better space and get those deer um, better opportunity to express their best genetics. It's just you have to give it time and you have to manage. So um, it, it took a generation uh, to to see that those results though so it's like if you brought in a yearling or a, a two-year-old buck and you fed them really well they may not necessarily have a larger than average growth rate compared to the their their grandchildren it'd be their great-grandchildren great-grandchildren two, two yeah two generations so if you took a uh, a below average yearling buck and you fed them and you followed him to two, three, four, five, he's always going to be below average compared to the other deer. And then he breeds, and his offspring, which is a buck, is is going to be behind the offspring of its of its uh, cohort or its, you know, the other neighbors its whole life. But in the generation after that, that's where they started to see uh, the change. Okay. And if you think about it, it's interesting. It, it, there's an evolutionary advantage there where smaller individuals are likely better to, you know, suited to the forage in their environment. It keeps animals from growing, growing larger in a particularly good year only to be hurt when forage returns back to normal. So if you think about like the ebb and flow of good and poor acorn years or really good crop years versus not, you know, food, food varies. And so it, you need to kind of have that switch uh, flipped on for a couple generations for them to start saying, okay, we can now produce better. So is, it, is this kind of fall in line with some of these people who think that if it's not necessarily a flood season, but higher rain, meaning uh, better vegetation growth, that, that, that doesn't necessarily impact antler growth for that particular year? Yeah. Yeah, and, and rain rainfall will impact deer antler growth for sure. It's been shown multiple times in more of the arid regions of the country, um, where rainfall levels are moderate to to, to normal or high. Um, even in poor years, it's it's not as much. But what we're talking about is the same thing. I mean, anything yeah. that's the limiting factor there, you know, there could be years where it's really good or really poor, and and uh, you know, for me, where I am, it's winter. I mean, winter could be the limiting factor, especially just north of where I live. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting. You know, yeah. it takes the, the, the guy or gal that says, I'm doomed. And it, you can tell them, no, uh, you know, instead Give it of year putting it back in their face, say, listen, work, work hard, manage, um, try to do the best you can on the ground that you're hunting, and you can make a change. I, I mean, in that study that we just talked about, the the – the small bucks, and they used the metric they used was antler size there. I should say that. Okay. I didn't say that. But um, the smaller, the poor quality area bucks, they actually surpassed the best soil bucks when they were their largest. Hmm. The, the best quality bucks actually even got bigger. But, you know, I, the, the deer from the best soil areas were, were at a certain level. And the poor quality soil uh, bucks were at a certain level, and there was a pretty big disparity between them at year one. But at year three, those poor poor quality deer were actually bigger than the deer that were in the best quality area the, oh. the, at the original year, which is crazy. Man, so it's almost like, hey, my body size, I've had good nutrition all my life. And if you have good nutrition versus poor nutrition your whole life, you're, you're going to have a bigger body, right? And yeah. Yeah. maybe your genetics are there for your antlers or not, but – what I what I see with the um, with the poor nutrition is is you have room to make gains instead yeah. of already being at the top. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, let's see. Next one here. Fat bottom bucks. You make the rockin' world go round. <laughs> I like the Queen reference. 
Yeah, good, good. I like it. Um, this is this was kind of two studies I talked about in this one. I'll just kind of sum it up. Uh, basically, there's one study out of Auburn, one study out of Texas A&M. They both showed that bigger body bucks have higher breeding rates or better success with breeding. The Texas study showed that um, it was basically weight was able to allow them more reduced foraging time and spent more time breeding. So it was more of kind of a time allocation. And the Auburn study showed that um, body size was the most important in terms of selection. And they did that through DNA analysis. They had like over 250 captive deer um, and they were able to back assign paternity, basically who not only bred, but actually successfully reared fawns. Um, it was tied mostly to, to body size. So thinking about that in terms of hunting and selection of, of what deer you shoot, older deer tend to have bigger bodies. There's, there's a high correlation there, but just basically bigger body bucks have the best opportunity and success rate for breeding. Gotcha. And that I wrote makes, something like husky bucks equals lucky bucks. There you go. And that, and that kind of makes not only from a, a battling standpoint, right? When the bucks are going to yeah. fight each other, the heavier deer is going to have the advantage as far as the push. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's, they know they make it through the winter. They, is that a two way street with bucks and does then too? Most of that was on bucks. I don't know if it was a two-way street on on does in terms of body size and success of breeding. Yeah. This I know that they did this for both of these studies was was buck specific. Okay. Um, does are a little bit tricky. You know, it's funny we teach like aging on the hoof uh, or you know the kind of technique to try to guess an age. You and I have chatted about that before, and I've had people ask me, "Does that work for does?" And it doesn't. I mean, doe um, size is the variability is they're just so much greater than it is with bucks as bucks age, they do tend to get bigger and there's a pretty strong significance to that. But there are does that, you know, that might be two or three years old that can dress much larger than a doe that's five or six or seven years old. There's just, there's a lot more size variability in them. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, next one, antler size matters. And I, I talked to Bronson about this a while ago. Um, so I think I know where this one's going, but what, what is so important about antler size? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, and this one, I almost called antler size matters too. I just, you know, in the, in the previous example, I just said body size matters in terms of breeding. This one, this was a recent study, 2018. Um, they found that does selected bucks with bigger antlers and when they're given the choice basically. Um, and this is that Daniel Marina project where they sawed antlers off and they created these like, um, Lego type, like connection things where they could swap antler size out. And they, in in the study anyway, about almost 90% of the does that were in estrus when they were given the choice, they chose to hang out with larger antlered bucks, which is, which is insane, but yeah. um, that makes sense too. I mean, antlers are Bronson's a whiz when it comes to this. He was actually another one of our webinar uh, speakers, and we had him talk about antlers. Um, you know, antlers are are there for a couple different reasons. Uh, certainly, defending, fighting, um, displaying all these different things. But we think you know, cho- mate choice is one of the major reasons. Yeah, that's and that's crazy. Do you think? that like antler size trumps aggressiveness by any by any means and the reason i say that is because i think it was this year yeah it was this year i had two four-year-old bucks chasing a doe and they squared off once and the buck with and i don't they didn't fight but you know they got they got uh, broadside with each other and they made that walk and you know they Mm. put their ears back and they put their heads down and the the smaller antlered buck eventually came out on top and pushed the bigger antlered buck away. And they're both, I would say they're both four year old, four year old deer. And so, but so in, in this environment, it is only based off of the actual antler size, not the bucks competing against each other. Exactly. Okay. Think of, yeah. So what, what it showed was if those were given the choice, they would pick the 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 dude with the bigger antlers, <laughs> the biceps. But, but 
when it comes to success, like the, the previous number that we just talked about, when it comes to success and opportunity, body wins. That yeah. does not surprise me that you said that the smaller antlered but probably slightly bigger body deer was the one that came out on top. That's going to be the case. But you know what? Just like in uh, dating and marriage and humans, yeah. those get a choice too. And, uh, you know, they're they're 50% of the decision making here. And they, they do tend to, I mean, 86%, I think it was, yeah. uh, pick the ones with the bigger antlers. So I don't know. Huh. It, it, it makes it, it makes uh, the whole thing interesting. And, you know, yeah, if, yeah. Given, if given their, their choice, those are going to be pick, picking bigger antler bucks, but they're not necessarily always the ones that are winning. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'll, I'll be honest, I've seen aggressive, smaller deer as well push off yeah. bigger bodied, less aggressive deer. Yeah. Then you get into behavior yeah. and like, and all that stuff. And I think that does play a role too. I mean, there are certainly behavioral things with certain deer. They have tendencies of whether they're more active in daylight versus night. And we yeah. talked about that a couple of years ago, but yeah, yeah, I think aggressiveness kind of uh, attitude certainly plays a role as well. Gotcha. All right. Uh, the next one, we're going to be skipping a couple here for time constraints here, but yeah. even the little guys win. Yeah, even the little guys win. Um, this one's a, a good one. Even where in situations where you have really well balanced age structures for bucks in a in a herd, so you have deer that are young, middle, and even really mature. Even the younger bucks, the one and two year olds in this study, um, contribute to breeding. It's yeah. not like, and I think this is this one came out at the beginning of the decade. Um, this was kind of an aha moment for a lot of folks. It was like we always talked about advancing age structure and making sure there's older bucks out there. Um, you would think that they would dominate the breeding and they do to a degree, but even in really, really well balanced where you have a significant proportion of older bucks, these younger bucks are contributing up to a third of the breeding. And that was also done through GNA analysis. And some of it wasn't necessarily um, who's around. It was just kind of who it was more opportunistic, you know, who there's a doe and estrus. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's these younger bucks that are are opportunistic, and when there's a hot doe, they're there and they're they're Johnny on the spot. Yeah, and man, I, I see that all the time, uh, especially this year. Again, I, I don't know why, but this year I saw a lot of really cool things, and one of them was, um, I think it was a yearling buck, and he was like trying to mount his own mother, and. It was it was kind of funny because she turned around and just beat the piss out of him, like <laughs> yeah. wham wham hit him uh, on top of the head, and he learned his lesson and kind of went away. But um, he probably didn't learn his lesson. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, for for the next couple hours, anyway, he did. Yeah, and uh, so it it and the fact that there's obviously in any environment there's probably more. I don't know if we're going to use let's just say one year olds to four year olds. There's probably more one and two year olds. And yeah. less three and four year olds. There always is. Yeah. yeah. If you think about volume, I mean, think how many four and five year olds are actually on the on the landscape. Even in really well balanced situations, yeah, they're a smaller proportion of the, of what's out there. Yeah, just more, yeah. more. Which is which plays a large role in why that percentage is so high yeah. of younger bucks contributing. Yeah, very interesting there. All right, uh, let's see here. Uh, soil quality impacts yield, not nutrients. I'm I'm glad you did not skip this one. This is this is another aha moment, but it just happened. Actually, you were at the convention that this uh, presentation was given. Yeah. So, Dr. Craig Harper at a University of Tennessee's really amazing habitat manager, world's probably foremost expert on on this kind of stuff. But this goes back down to think about how many times of the reference that we saw as a nation, as a nation of deer hunters, where somebody would show you the map of Boone and Crockett records across the country and then said, look at where all those Boone and Crockett's are being shot. It's got to be soil quality. Look at, you know, where all the best soils are. Soil quality must be influencing the nutrition in those areas and the deer are just bigger because of it. Makes sense. I mean, it's plausible. Right. Um, Craig got thinking he said is it really nutrients and so what he did was he collected plant and soil samples and picked plants that were common commonly found and commonly eaten by deer in the diets of deer everywhere and he collected them 
in, he took soil maps around the country. Um, there's a very specific, like US, the US Geological Service publishes soil quality maps and you can see where like the really good soils are and where the really poor soils are. And he collected plants from all these different regions and soils right next to where he collected the, sand, uh, the plants and said, all right, does nutrients vary? So for example, in my article, I wrote something about pokeweed. I'll use that as the example. If pokeweed is an annual plant that pops up after disturbance, generally preferred by deer. If he collected or his students collected a pokeweed plant where you live and where I live, and then let's say Florida, so New York, Iowa, Florida, does that pokeweed plant have different nutrient profile? Does it have different levels of crude protein? Does it have different levels of um, phosphorus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He went through the list of different nutrients that they would eat. And they actually found, no, it didn't matter if the plant was growing in pure sand or black loam. It had the same levels of everything. So then you got thinking, well, then that's not true. If uh, a deer shot in New York versus Iowa versus Florida, why are they so different? Body size, antler size on average, it, it can't be nutrients if the plants inherently, the plants they're eating have have the same nutrients. Well, aha, what it is is yield. In places of better soil, these plants just produce more leaves. They're, they're shoot, producing more shoots, which produce more leaves because the soil is there feeding that plant. And if you really think about like, you know, yields of, let's say corn, yep. you know, a crop commonly planted, you, you can find a cornfield in Florida somewhere. You definitely can find them in New York and you can find them in Iowa. Well, the average yields of those plants in those three states are very different on average. Yeah. So what it means is deer in better soil areas are just getting more food. Okay. They have they have more opportunity and food is a, a major contributing factor to a deer expressing its most genetic potential. They have to be well fed, right? If they're underfed, they're not going to be big body, they're not going to show big antlers, antlers we talked a minute ago are, are these what called Bronson calls secondary sexual characteristics. They're only going to be big if their body is taken care of first. And thus that's the answer yeah. where the best soils are. The yield is the highest, um, meaning more bites per mouth. Every deer is overfed or well-fed and they're just going to express more of their, of their genetics. Okay. So I just want to simplify this for the listener because I think it makes, um, it makes it, this is a really good point. Let's say that one ear of corn, you know, uh, a, de one, a deer gets one ear of corn a day, or that's what is available to that deer is one ear yeah. of corn a day. Well, in Florida, it may only be a half of ear of corn a day. And in Iowa, it could be two ears of corn a day. Yeah. Right. Yep. So it's on not average. on yeah. average. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that those kernels of corn that he's chewing have higher nutrients it's just i'm getting more of that yeah. equal nutrients and, th and think about us like if you were to eat you know one helping of food at dinner tonight and versus going back for seconds or going back for thirds how much bigger would you get if yeah. you had thirds i mean that's really what it means um the, the the second part of that study which applies to anybody is that they actually found that forbes which are these broadleaf plants, basically weeds. Um, if you disturb the ground, things like pokeweed will come up and you let it grow there for a year or two before it starts turning into shrubs and trees. Those forbs have the highest nutrients. So all you need to do as a manager, instead of saying, you know, we're talking a few minutes ago about being doomed, um, just do a lot of management. You can produce the most forbs and you're going to produce the most nutrients for deer by doing that. Awesome. All yeah. right. So I'm going to skip a little bit. So, um, if you, if you say, Hey, let's not, uh, let's not forget about this one. Right. Like, you know, you said you, that I was, uh, you were glad that you covered number seven here. I'm going to skip a couple, but if there's some that we skip that you think yeah. take priority, you just stop me and tell me. Okay. No problem. Uh, all right. So, um, we talk about CWD a lot, uh, you know, it's, it's very important. And, you know, sometimes to the point where it's just like, oh man, and I hate to say it, but I feel like, and this is just my personal opinion. Sometimes CWD, we hear about it so much that we lose the importance of it. 
Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree. So the blob is real. Let's let's sum this up. There's a bunch of stuff under this one, so I yeah. don't want to tie up too much time. And yeah. I want to say something good instead of bad. I mean, we've learned a lot about it in the last decade. Um, some things that are are not so great. Um, some things that are good. But one thing that we've learned that's good is that we found that there are some uh, populations of deer that are more susceptible than others. Um, and another thing that we found is that a simple five minute soak in household bleach will neutralize CWD on stainless steel. So basically makes it ineffective. So there are some good things coming out. I guess I'd encourage whoever's listening just to go on the article and, yeah. and read through some of those. There's some, there's some pretty interesting stuff in the CWD uh, world. Okay. All right. So let's see the next one. Deer go on vacation. We know that deer go on what's called excursions. So basically, if you think of a home range of a deer where they are 95% of the time, um, you know, if you took a location off of a deer that had a collar on it every hour and you drew a line around 95 of the 100 points, you'd have this kind of circle. That's their home range. Well, every once in a while, some deer leave and they go a mile away and then they come back. Um, a day or so later. Um, we didn't even know those things happened really <laughs> before 2010. Um, it's a really interesting thing. And we've learned a lot about excursions because of GPS collars, because again, going back to that comment I made earlier about the old research where somebody was out there with an antenna, that person had to uh, not only stand in one place and get a location on a deer, they had to triangulate it, meaning they'd have to like drive around to a different location and get another a bearing on it and then driving around again and get another bearing. And that would be one location for that deer. Um, these GPS units, we know where the deer are within a couple meters at the hour interval, if we want. And we see them like taking these jaunts way outside of where they were. And then they come back. Um, we know about half of bucks, two and a half years or old go on them. So it's not, and bucks and does do go on excursions. Um, they happen year round. It's not just during the rut. Um, and they'll, they're gone for 10 to 20 hours or so. Um, it really shines a light on some of those instances where you might get a trail camera picture of a deer that you've never seen before. You know, talking about a buck, yep. like never seen that deer before. And then you never see him again, or you're sitting in a stand, um, and a deer comes running by and you've never seen that deer before. Yeah. Um, or where a buck that you've been watching disappears and some guy two miles away or a mile and a half away kills him. Yeah. Um, and you're like, how the heck did he end up way over there? <laughs> you know, like the, there's a good chance it was a deer on an excursion. So we didn't even know they happened prior to 2010. Uh, is there any, any, and this is just a personal question here, any information about deer that leave for an entire year? and then come back because I am missing yeah. a really, really big buck this year that did not show up this summer, and um, I'm hoping he's on one of these excursions. But uh, Typically, excursions are pretty short. Okay. There are deer. It's probably less than, I'm going to say 10%. I don't know what the number is, but it's a small percentage of deer have something called dumbbell-shaped home ranges where they literally have a, a, a part – where they spend part of the year and it might be a couple hundred acres might be bigger. And then they will go on these movements. I'm not going to call it an excursion to another place. And they spend months, if not half a year or so there, and they go back and forth. Okay. Um, I gave a talk about this a few years ago, um, which I showed some animations really cool on the slides where you'd see the deer go back and forth. In fact, it's part of our deer steward series. And, um, this one deer in particular, I remember him. He made he made that movement, Dan. This oh, within a day or the same day for two or three years in a row. Wow. Like in March, whatever it was, March fifteenth, he made the movement back to his second home range, and then in September came back and was within a day or two. And then he did the same thing the following year, like around March fifteenth, he did the same thing. So yeah, there are deer out there that do that. Huh. Man, that's interesting. I, I hope this deer shows back up because he's gigantic. I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so for you. Anyway, so 
Uh, we'll wind it down here. Um, we'll see what what we get with these next two because we're gonna lump them into two or into one topic. It's fifteen and sixteen, and a lot of people go out and they hate they hate bobcats and they hate coyotes because they feel that they are the the worst thing for the deer you know for the deer herd. And yeah. fifteen is predator removal works sometimes, and sixteen is fawns die regardless of predators. Yeah, these are interesting studies, and this is kind of what's uh, frustrating, I guess might be one word, but also I find so fascinating about the world of research is somebody might find something, and then somebody else might find the opposite in a different place, and it kind of leaves your head scratching. But you kind of amass all this research, and you say, all right, well, what does it all mean? But the first one, predator removal work, sometimes there was a series of studies in a row there for the be- kind of the beginning of the decade where – they were uh, monitoring populations and fawn recruitment, like productivity, and seeing uh, what would happen if they removed predators um, and intensively trapped, removed mostly coyotes in those circumstances, and watched as fawn recruitment would immediately respond in a positive way. Um, and then there were some studies. And so they said, okay, uh, this is easy. You know, like if you, you're having problems with your deer density and um, predators are, are part of the problem, just go out there and actively trap um, right before fawning. And you'll remove the, the source of mortality right before fawns hit the ground just long enough that these fawns can, can, can make it. And uh, they said, okay, this is, this is great. We, we've learned that. Part of that study what they also found was or studies uh was they were starting to run into situations where it didn't work as well where they would remove predators and they didn't see the response and so kind of the researchers started talking back and forth and saying okay what's going on here um why can this work sometimes and in other places it's not so they launched really they kind of got together instead of arguing um researchers in several states got together and they launched what's called the tri-state coyote project and what they found from that, I'll kind of get to the, the nuts and bolts, was there are kind of like two different, it's almost a split personality of coyotes out there. There are coyotes that are more residents. They were, they're homebodies where they set up a den, they have pups, they breed, and they really stay close to that kind of area of, of where their territory is. And then there's another, and they make up about two-thirds of coyotes. Um, our, our residents. And then there's another kind of personality of coyotes called transients. These are just kind of nomads. They're out there roaming all the time. And these nomads have enormous home ranges. I'm talking about 10, 20, 30 square miles where they just roam. And what they found was in some circumstances, you might have a resident uh, den set up that are just wearing out the, the fawns. And they're, they're there. They're a constant source. Um, and if you remove them, it takes a little while, but these transients actually end up filling that space and will set up a den. But it takes some time. Um, and that's why in, they're, they're surmising that in some cases you trap some coyotes, you're probably taking a den or two out and fawns uh, drop and they actually can make it. And in some cir- circumstances, uh, you might be removing um a transient or, or a den and it's kind of in that in-between stage. So that's kind of why the predator removal works sometimes. Gotcha. The fawns die regardless of predators. That was a study out of Delaware. Delaware is a unique state where coyotes live. They've actually really have not even populated that state yet. I mean, the, if you look at fawn, uh, coyote movement across and they don't really have a, a, a population there. So they found that even in the absence of predators, they still see pretty high mortality rates for fawns. So they don't have coyotes, bobcats killing them, those kinds of things. Um, but weather can play a role um, when the fawns drop. Um, they're just really vulnerable. Think about you know babies. Think yeah. about puppies. You know, when fawns are on the ground, they're they're just super vulnerable. So. That, that study made the assumption that, you know, predators might be removing the kind of doomed uh, proportion of fawns that may not make it anyway. You know, if they're cold and wet and they're calling for mama, it might key in in a predator, um, you know, if, or, or they die and some predator finds them and scavenges them. So we're still learning a lot. 
on predators, but there's all these different circumstances that that are being discovered in the last decade. Yeah, man, a lot of inter, in, interesting stuff on uh, on this article that I really encourage everybody to go uh, to go check out. And you can do that by going to the DeerAssociation.com website, the National Deer Association website, and then I take it just go to the little search bar and search the 20 biggest deer research discoveries of the last decade and you will find it article by matt ross here matt thanks for taking time out of your day to uh, hop on and uh chat with us today man interesting stuff always a pleasure dan i love i love being on here you guys do great stuff and uh, we appreciate your support and there you have it ladies and gentlemen Huge shout out to Matt for coming on and uh, taking time out of his day to talk with us. Man, that was a really fun episode. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. The Average Conservationist, Vortex Optics, Ozonics, Wasp, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands. Man, please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast. And uh, when, when you support them, you're supporting me man and uh, I appreciate that so and plus they're just badass companies right other than that follow me on social Instagram Facebook follow the Sportsman's Nation Instagram Facebook keep an eye out for the cooking show on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel and other than that man have fun be safe and good luck in the field